Welcome to Interplay Conversations in Music. This is your host, Michael Shapiro, and I'm so delighted to have Lydia Yankovskaya with me. Hello, Lydia. Hello, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. Such a delight. Chicago Opera Theater, Refugee Orchestra Project, guesting, God willing, when this all passes with many organizations, conducting some of my favorite music, my God, Seattle, Hawaii, Dallas, all these great places where I have so many friends such great, great places. But Lydia, in a very, very short time, you're doing amazing things. And, you know, with the Chicago Opera Theater, we spoke before we started today. But, you know, I think of just the names of what you're doing. It doesn't say Boheme Carmen, Boheme Carmen, Boheme Carmen. Not that there's a problem with Boheme Carmen, Boheme Carmen. But you've got on the Chicago Opera Theater roster, Voices of Refuge, Transformation of Jane Doe, Vanguard, Micro Jams, Rimsky Rebooted. I love that, by the way. Inner Workings, Taking Up Serpents, the puppy episode, Il Postino. So I, as a living composer in Chappaqua, New York, to you in Chicago, say brava, brava, brava. Now, <laughs> <laughs> talk to us about the future of opera that you are doing right now in the presence in Chicago. Well, I think we're so lucky right now that there is so much great opera being written in the United States. We have so many composers and more and more librettists in the field who really know what they're doing, who are starting to get real training also in this and varied experience that allows for the writing of opera. Um, and there's some just phenomenal work. I think right now, to me, the United States is the center for new opera. This is where it's being created. This is where it's more vibrant. We've also reached a time in our history where we're ready to put ourselves into this art form, to make art through opera, art that is relevant, that is about us, that is of today and for today. Uh, so we were just speaking about Kamala Shankaram's Taking Up Serpents, which I just closed at COT, for instance. Um, it was written by composer Kamala Shankaram and librettist Jerry Dye. And the work uh, takes place in Alabama and the central characters are um, in a Pentecostal snake handling church. And the opera isn't really about that. It's about the character's journey and uh, spiritual journey. It's about uh, the main character's journey in uh, leaving her faith and then returning to it and returning to her faith and her family. Um, right. But it takes place in such an American setting that mm. is so specific to our continent, to our culture, to our country. Um, and to me, that is very exciting because this is where we live. And to me, that's how opera survives and thrives into the future by speaking to us about us. Now, I have a question for you about speaking to us about us. There's a trend right now to um, at least an outward trend to look to composers who've been or, or themes that have been underserved. Now, that's wonderful, and the pendulum hopefully can swing to where everyone is considered, as it were, in this volatile world of opera that we live. But I notice in the works you choose and the composers that you work with, there's consistent quality. And that, to me, has always been the overriding force. I was brought up by a, by a mother, a wonderful father, but I was very much brought up by a mother. I didn't have these prejudices that faced a lot of people in the industry for, for much too long. And I, you know, I'm old enough to remember those days. But I notice in what you do, 
there's an overriding sense of it has to have the guts. It doesn't. You don't care where it comes from. It could come from Mars, don't you think? Absolutely. Well, I think if there's no quality, then what are we doing here, right? And sometimes I think in any situation, people, uh, for instance, when we speak about equity in art, there are so many amazing creators there of all backgrounds, of all colors, of all creeds. Um, But sometimes it takes more work to find them because they haven't been given the opportunities for one reason or another. I think in general, finding work of quality takes time. It takes effort. It takes sifting through a lot of scores that get sent your way. It takes Mm. really um, uh, digging into them and trying to understand them and speaking to the creators. And I think what you're referring to is that sometimes people just don't take the time to really dig in. And the result is they, they perpetuate the same inequities just in a different way. So then maybe they're programming, even let's say a certain composer of color who is very accomplished, but then it's just that composer being programmed by every single company over and over again, when there's a slew of others who may be uh, equally or even more yeah. qualified. It's a cop-out, it really is. And you know, you're taking the time, dear Lydia, from this old man, always take the time <laughs> because then you'll be Kusevitsky. You know, yeah. the great conductors in my book were the ones that really, really looked at the life of their of their of their time and sought them out, like Klemper with Kurt Weil. You know, yeah, it's one. Example. I love that you brought up Kusevitsky in particular because I spent the early of years of my career in Boston. Yeah. and uh, was involved with the Boston Symphony and did some work with them. And uh, right. just that history of Kusevitsky in the early 20th century, just the number of composers that yeah. he brought to the fore. Some were Russian composers whom he knew That's from right. Eastern Europe, but others were American composers. Correct. He supported composers of different backgrounds. Yeah. different creeds who were coming up. Um, and I think that's so important. Boulez to me is another person like that. Pierre who, did, yes. Yeah, Pierre Boulez, who also uh, was a composer himself, but also held up other composers and brought their works uh, to the fore. And I think as conductors, we have the responsibility to do that. And I think in a culture of jet setting and guest conducting from place to place to place, um, it first of all becomes harder to do that, but also the expectations have changed. And I think so often conductors are not involved in programming as much as they used to, are not necessarily interested in seeking out. Um, it's easy, but it's easy. It's easy. It's easy for them. Yeah. They, because they, you know, but I will tell you that when you conduct that Mozart finally <laughs> in Seattle and in Dallas, God willing, I just did the Mozart in, in Seattle, actually, but that was a whole interesting COVID experience. Okay, I, I know. But <laughs> the, the point of the matter is when you go and conduct any of those great Mozart operas, you're going to be so informed by the work you've done with us living folks. It just makes it so much more vibrant, don't you? Absolutely. Think? Absolutely. I think it goes vice versa. And with uh, with the, the DePonte operas, which I've done and on multiple occasions, it's you start to think about the composer, the process, the librettist in a totally different way. And you start to appreciate them in a much deeper way. Yeah. And you spend a lot of time developing work and thinking very carefully about how each word is shaped, how each word is set, how each dramatic moment is set no to create the right dramatic timing. 
I think then that when you approach something like, like I just did the San Giovanni in Seattle, and when you're looking at well, why did Mozart repeat this particular text and what are those slight differences that totally changed the color, the quality, the dramatic yes. meaning of it and how this meaning sometimes through history has been warped and maybe uh, misinterpreted and what, what were they perhaps trying to convey and how can we well, understand that? You know, Mozart Verdi, they knew how to move people across the stage. <laughs> yes. No, but that's very important, which some opera composers have no concept of. Even today, you know, today, many. The whole concept of recitative and aria in, in new music. One problem of new music, which I think is, a, a, as a composer, you know, I've seen uh, among many of my, of my fellow f composers, writing the so-called modern recitative is really easy chord singing line, chord singing line, chord singing. But after a while, you want to shoot yourself if you're the listener because there's a sameness, a black and white quality about it. And there's very few people who know how to go in and out of arioso, for example, or multiple, you know, quartets or quintets or whatever, or choral work, you know, back and forth, very few. In writing my current opera, The Slave, I am studying Mozart almost daily. I listen to him all the time. Verdi's a different story because it's more, you know, somehow it's more of the period, even in listening to Otello. But when you listen to Mozart, it seems so timeless because he's talking about real people, you know? Absolutely, that, absolutely. That count at the end of Nozze, for example, when he begs forgiveness from him. Oh my God. Oh, it's a magical moment. And the, the way he sets that musically also after yeah. this finale yeah. that where the motion just doesn't start and everybody's running, running, running. And then it's, a moment of suspense. It's so beautiful. Oh, da, dee, yeah. da, da, da. Unbelievable. Yeah. So this must inform your work um, when you're doing the dramatic work. Do you have much uh, interplay, using the term of the show, with the directors? Because sometimes the conductors are shut off. But are you going into performances where you can really work closely with the directors and make sure that they've got that musical connection from you, which I think would be fantastic? Well, absolutely. And, and the hope is also that you work with directors who themselves think deeply about the music and what the composer was trying to convey. But regardless, I always try to really connect with directors. There are some conductors, I think, again, especially lately, there are some people who don't even come to the staging rehearsals and show up in the last few days and then mount something on stage. But of course, the drama and the music need to be one in a successful opera. Yeah. That was the intent of the creators. And in order to make it really great, they have to feel like they're one unified whole, not fighting against each other. And so I think it's very important to work with the director throughout the process to make sure that the director is, both the director is uh, channeling what's in the music, but also as the conductor, when there are interpretive choices, that those choices mirror what we're trying to say dramatically. Do you get involved in these sets as well? Do you see those early on? Uh, sometimes, but rarely, I would say it has more to do with how the singers deliver the text. What is the overall dramatic arc of the story um, more than anything? But yes, of course, occasionally. Let's talk about subtitles. When I've conducted my Frankenstein movie all over the world now from Russia, by the way, in St. Petersburg, next to the Mariensky, we did, we did it. But in Norway and wherever, in England and here in the States and Canada, we initially didn't have the subtitles, even though it was a, a, a you know, an English film, 
When it was done at the Mariinsky, it was done with Russian at the bottom, by the way. But we found that adding the subtitles, even when they are talking English, it's alive, it's alive. You see, it's alive, it's alive at the bottom. I find the subtitling, even in strictly English operas, so when my pieces are finally done again here in the States, I'm going to demand subtitles to the extent I can demand it, even when they're speaking on stage. But when working with singers, which I've done all my life, and Broadway stuff, the singing, the talking, every vowel's going to come through, and not the Joan Sutherland of right? Now, certain composers know how to set the words so they can come over the orchestra and be the same. So when you're rehearsing, when you've got those proben that you're working on, are you working on the words? Absolutely. I think the words, I, I also, the way I learn operas, I start with the words because the composer started with the words, right? That's the first thing the composer looked at before they set right. any music. Right. And that's what they worked with. And also that's the starts to guide the story that we're trying to tell. Obviously the music brings all of the richness and depth and nuance to it, but that is mm -hmm. the start. Um, I think the words are absolutely crucial. And I think because we now have super titles or subtitles, depending on how you're watching the opera, because we now have titles in opera, um, I think often there is less of a focus on singers delivering text really clearly. When you listen to some of these old recordings in any language that come from the middle of the 20th century, early 20th century, you understand every single word. Oh, and yeah. that even goes, uh, not only operas that hear, for instance, in Russian, which is my language where everything is crystal clear, but languages that I speak, but maybe am not as fluent on, suddenly I understand every single word because of how it's delivered. Um, and I think that's essential for our work now. Yeah, and I think also composers in some cases, because we have titles, and I encounter this sometimes in my work where composers will say, well, it doesn't matter. They'll see the titles. Shoot me now, right now, right through the head. That is nonsense. It's, it's theater. Nonsense. For, it's theater. Of course. And this is where musical theater actually gets it right, I think, that in opera, sometimes we forget. And not everybody, of course. And there are many composers who don't, most composers don't view things that way. But it's essential for the words to come through clearly. And that is oh, the responsibility yeah. of the composer. It is the responsibility of the librettist as well to write words that one can set easily and not oh. to make it so wordy that it becomes impossible. It is the responsibility of the performers, of myself as the conductor, of the singers, of the director, of everyone on stage. Well, that's so true. You know, you're making me feel really good. I'm just oh, saying, good. I'm you really are, because this is my life's work, just pushing people to enunciate and tell them that, you know, the bel canto is very important, but we have to have both. We just have to have both. There's no question about it. You are like me coming from a, a, a refugee family in a way, you know, um, because let's face facts. You got out of Russia when things were turning bad again. And my mom did in 1920 when she came here as a baby on that ship with my grandparents. Zhenya, her name was, which became Jean. <laughs> so you, you founded or have been working with the Refugee Orchestra Project which I find a wonderful, wonderful topic. Can you talk about that, please? Yeah. So um, I think sometimes it's easy to forget that 
all of us, especially in the United States, all of us have a refugee background usually or an immigrant background in one way or another, even if you're, let's say, Native American. Native Americans were forced to cross the country from one part to the other and had to be refugees within this land. Um, And I think it's easy for people to forget just how important refugees and immigrants have been to the cultural development of our country and of the world, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things we do with Refugee Orchestra Project is just try to showcase how throughout generations, throughout history, throughout the world, uh, giving people refuge has led to the creation of great art and culture. Um, So in some cases we feature living composers, but we also Uh, for instance, have featured work by Chopin, whom everybody sees as a French composer, but of course he was originally Polish and we forget that. Or Donizetti, who was an Italian composer, but at that point, Italy was a set of city-states and certain city-states he had to flee because of political persecution and censorship of his work. Um, Or Irving Berlin in the United States, who in some ways has uh, created the foundation of much of popular music today. You and put about an emigrate an emigrate uh, concert fairly recently, did you not? Yes, we did. We did. Yeah, we. I mean, we've done a number of these, but the most recently we did the one in partnership with Chicago Opera Theater in Chicago uh, this fall. That's right. Now, um, I'm very curious about your Rimsky re- rebu- rebooted. Please talk about that. <laughs> So uh, Rimsky Rebooted is a a perfect pandemic story. It was originally a a performance of Rimsky-Korsakov's The Invisible City of Kitej, which is a masterpiece. It's Rimsky-Korsakov. He himself considered it to be his greatest work. It was. It is. It was. Always will be. It's not done here enough. It's not done here enough. It's not done enough. Yes, it's an incredible piece. How can the Met not have done that ever? I know. It's, it's, uh, but it's an amazing piece. I think it's been on tour here uh, with the Mariinsky has brought on to, but it's Correct. rarely done um, right. for many reasons, but it's a beautiful, beautiful work. So that's what we were supposed to do in the fall. And then at the start of the pandemic, first it changed to kind of a concert semi-staged version of it. Then we realized that we can't have a giant chorus on stage. So we scaled that down. Then we scaled it down more, but but there's no way you can reduce, take out the chorus in that piece or reduce the orchestra. So much of it is just the, the orchestration, the depth of the orchestration. So then we changed it to Rimsky-Korsakov's Cachet the Immortal, which is a very small cast. It's only an hour long, much smaller opera, also fantastic and should be done more. Um, mm-hmm. But then the pandemic continued ah. to become more and more serious. Things weren't improving as we had hoped. And in the end, it's morphed into Rimsky Rebooted, which was um, uh, a performance. Uh, it, it was a, with piano and a number of singers. I played half the program and a colleague of mine played the other half of the program. Uh, right. And it was uh, music from Cachet the Immortal, a large scene from Cachet the Immortal, uh-huh. Uh, other works by Rimsky Korsakov, as well as some contemporary work and other things from COT's repertoire. Uh, we had uh, wonderful, wonderful singers, primarily the baritone uh, Will Liverman and mezzo soprano Annie Rosen, who are both just phenomenal performers. Um, it was not, it was uh, fun for me to play for a change, which I never get to do anymore. And we had again a crazy story with that because the day before we were supposed to film this concert, we had the uh-huh. venue lined up, everything was set. The concert, so we switched to a concert format. I think just two weeks before 
Cache de Morto was supposed to happen because the city regulations became even more stringent. It became mm-hmm. clear that it wasn't safe. So we switched to this concert format. And then the day before we presented the concert, the venue said to us that actually you can't come in tomorrow. We've decided that we don't want any singers in our space because we're afraid of super spreading um, from singers. Of course, we Mm -hmm. have very, very stringent regulations on everything, but the venue didn't ask us about Mm -hmm. our regulations and made that call. So we had three hours to find an alternate space. (laughs) Uh, Luckily, venues were sitting empty. So we found a phenomenal venue in the Chicago area and we were able to record this concert. But I think we counted at the end that we had something like at least seven versions of this performance before it finally happened. That's so wonderful. Now, again, video, audio, live. My synagogue, for example, is doing everything via feed at this point, obviously. But a lot of people are now saying that they can go to services without ever going to temple again. It's happening in churches also all, all over the country. And Vimeo, where my, one of my sons works, Vimeo platform is taken off in the churches, okay, and synagogues. Now, going forward, I know that you're gonna be in the forefront of this. There's no question about it. I'm in New York. I can't, I go to Chicago every year in the past, the Midwest Clinic, that you know about, right? Mm-hmm. The wonderful bands and so forth. 40,000 people going, it's great. That's when I go to Chicago. But I would love to see Stacey Garrett's, you know, transformation of Jane Doe, because last time I saw Stacy was at a bar in the Hilton during Midwest. Now, I can't come to Chicago necessarily, but I'd like to see that. So I think I'm going to be able to see it through video, won't I? Yeah. And I, in particular, for our, Stacey Garrett was part of our Vanguard program, which is which for I want to talk about that. Vanguard yeah, for, for in, in embarking on writing operas. Um, So specifically for our Vanguard program in particular, we are definitely planning to keep streaming and to keep sharing all of this because it is so essential, especially for a lesser known composer to get someone to come out to their work from out of the city or out of the country is very hard. Um, For bigger works, we are hoping to stream as much as we can, but we run into challenges because of the cost. And the costs are not just the streaming itself and the audio. Those, of course, are large costs in themselves. It is um, that many of the union structures are set up in such a way that they still relate to times when we could make big sales or for things that work on Broadway or maybe work with MedHD or something like that, where you have really, really large distribution models and people are willing to pay to watch Hamilton or Disney Plus is willing to pay to stream Hamilton, for instance. so without those massive distribution processes, uh, certainly we don't make money off of these um, performances, but it becomes very challenging. And I worry about that for the art form because yes, I think we have this opportunity here to make these pieces more accessible and fr- yeah. frankly also to make less of a, an impact on the environment as all of us who are in the industry hop from country to country to see specific works and people um, and to expose, bring more exposure to artists. We talked about equity earlier and it's usually things that are already well known and that already have buzz about them that people yeah. go to travel to see, but this could be an opportunity to just experience more work from Correct. up and coming creators as well. When I got sick with COVID, I got a call from my, uh, the person who does my PR, Max, uh, crossover media. Michael, it's Max. Hi, hi, Max. Where are you? 
I'm in the hospital. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can you go on Sirius XM next week and do Living American? And I said, uh, I can do I can do Dying American if you want. <laughs> okay, but I'm getting to a point. So Max then says, Well, we'll wait another month. And then I waited another month. I did Living American on Sirius XM, and I did another show on Sirius XM. It's been great. And Sirius XM, as we know, cable huge amount of traffic. And the people who run it, Pablo Salazar, Vince Caruso, great people. I'm getting to a point. Since uh, April, May, I've had 100 radio cable performances. 100. Wow. Suddenly. So what am I saying? Different form. I don't have to wait for the in-concert. Nothing's wrong with the concert performances. But the fact that I have recordings... They get done if you have the right people getting it out there. So my comment to you is go for it. If you have to deal with that local Chicago union to do that big, you know, Boris Godunov in future years or whatever, or a new Russian opera, you can find one. They got to work with us. If they don't work I with agree. us, what's good. If they don't work with us, what's going to happen is I have to, if I record now, I record with the CBSO with the BBC. I don't do it here. Why am I not recording here? It's crazy. Why do I have to go to, you know, and what are you? So you're doing such amazing work with the Chicago Opera Theater that it should be visible to anyone, anywhere. Same thing with my stuff. Good old Max is getting me on, you know, CBC, BBC. And I just, I was in South Africa yesterday. You know, a hundred year old form, radio, cable now. So your internet purposes, let's talk about that. Vanguard Initiative, it was called a three-pronged investment in new opera, including a two-year training program for, I hate the word emerging, but people who want to try to write opera. <laughs> exactly. Emerging, <laughs> if you have a better word, let me know. I know, everybody um, uses emerging. By the way, in bios, you know, being, you know, the, emerging as a blah, 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 talent in the field of blunk, you know, enough already. But talk about, you know, how do you, how do you, learn people opera that aren't deeply into it and know the repertoire. Yeah, it's, it's challenging because opera is a theatrical art form, right? And most composers right. training is uh, focused in the way it's structured in our universities. It's focused on music theory, the, the, theories of composition and orchestration right. and studying right. symphonic scores. We don't talk about theater and also there's little training for writing for the voice. So right. if you're not someone who, for instance, also happens to be a coach or someone who grew up in the theater in some other way, yeah. it's difficult to gain those skills. Um, what we have done is uh, made sure that composers, and these are composers coming in who already have a compositional voice. So they know what they want to say musically and how they want to say it for the most part. So we're not teaching the basic kind of tools. But the voice is not enough. Exactly. And so what we're doing at, with the Vanguard <laughs> program is that we are infusing the composers. The composers become an integral part of the company. They sit okay. in on all staging rehearsals for all the productions Good. that we do, Good. see the, the process beginning to end. They Good. see everything that happens behind the scenes on the administrative side and on the mechanical side of making an opera happen, because that also is very important. And plus, as you know, the opera world is so competitive. There's so few new operas being done that it's important for composers to understand 
understand the practicalities of how some of these decisions get made. Um, and they work a lot with singers, all kinds of singers. So they work closely with our young artists program, but they, we also have these Fox sessions where I will bring in many singers of um, a certain Fox that, that's like soprano or mezzo-soprano, but let's say soprano. And we will have five or six different kinds of sopranos with different kinds of voices who do very Fox, different kinds of things. Fox, for those who don't know, is range off Deutsch. Exactly. Tessitura. And Tessitura. Tessitura, yes. So we'll have a dramatic soprano, um, a lyric coloratura versus a dramatic coloratura, no. a, a soubrette, a, diff, a lyric, different kinds of lyric sopranos, right? Singing different roles so that uh, mm. the composers start to see the challenges of writing for an individual, for a unique voice, because every voice is unique and is capable of different things. Um, but also some of the similarities across the board. Um, and they work closely with, um, uh, we, we meet every month and we talk through standard repertory. Because right. even if someone wants to go in a totally different direction and write an opera that has nothing to do with uh, standard repertoire, I think it's very informative to have digly dug, deeply dug into the works of Verdi and Puccini and Mozart and um, Schoenberg and anybody, right? Uh, all of the composers of, of throughout time. We just studied Wolfsack, actually, for instance, or, or Britain, really all genres and mm. contemporary work that's being written. Uh, we even look at very early work as well to see how well, different the Monteverdi, composers... The Monteverdi operas, man. Exactly, Monteverdi <laughs> as well, to see how different composers yeah. have tackled certain problems, what has worked yeah. and what hasn't worked. And why ne the next generation of composers maybe has taken a totally different approach. Why, and, and what, again, what are the benefits of the Mozart recitativo ensemble model as we spoke earlier? And what are the benefits of something much more through composed that the next generation had taken? Um, what certain musical language, how does it change how text is set or how the voice is written for it? How does Berg write differently from Verdi and how do they write the same way, although their musical language is different, or Berg and Puccini, um, for instance. So we spend time studying repertoire. They during normal times they also go to rehearsals at the Lyric Opera of Chicago to see other some of that repertoire staged. Um, and uh, at the end of their two years, they also write their own opera, chamber opera, for a, kind of a modified Pierrot size ensemble. And mm -hmm. they work with a very experienced librettist because I want to be sure that that doesn't hold the composers back in any yep. way. So they partner with an experienced librettist and write this short piece, which is an opportunity to dip their feet in, to have something that they can use as a calling card for future opportunities right. um, and uh, to gain the experience because ultimately, until you do it, it's very hard to yeah, do it. <laughs> you've got to be in, you've got to have the paint all over your face. And you have to taste the paint. There's no question. Lydia Yankovskaya, wonderful conductor, wonderful mind, wonderful person who's getting to the heart of what, we, what we we're fighting our lives for. Thank you so much for being on Interplay. This has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's really, it's an honor to be here. I really appreciate Please. it. I'd love it. Lydia Yankovskaya, conductor, extraordinaire, this is Michael Shapiro, your host on Interplay, Conversations in Music. Thank you for joining us.